0: COVID-positive case numbers rising, 50,000 cases in the last 24 hours, new cases. Deaths up week on week by 20% and overnight. A number of very prominent health chiefs urging that Plan B should be adopted. Now, Plan B would mean a whole series of restrictions urging people to work from home, mandatory wearing of face masks, and indeed, it would also mean COVID passports. Well... The Health Secretary, Sajid Javid, responded to all of that at five o'clock today. Let's take a look.
1: We must all remember that this virus will be with us for the long term and that it remains a threat. A threat to our loved ones and a threat to the progress that we've made in getting our nation closer to normal life. We're looking closely at the data and we won't be implementing our Plan B of contingency measures at this point.
0: Well, I was pleased that Plan B is not being implemented at this point, but he did say in the course of that press conference that it was very important for people to go and get their booster jab to keep your freedoms. So, it's a bit of an oxymoron, really, isn't it? Do exactly as we tell you, or we might take your freedoms away, which I didn't like very much. But I want to ask you tonight, are you worried? Are you worried about the rising cases? Are you worried that ultimately the government could put us ..back into lockdown. I want to know what you think about that. GBviews at gbnews.uk Or you can tweet at gbnews. And my feelings on it all are that in some ways this is just never going to end. Uh, this virus is almost certainly going to be around for a very, very long time. And I'm, I'm sure there are many dedicated health professionals worried not just about Covid, but worried about winter flu. And I do feel and I do sense that probably... We will get some more restrictions placed upon us in the coming months. But I'm not worried that we're going to be going back into lockdown. Uh, and I think the reason for that is, and, 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 and Kwasi Kwarteng, you know, pointed out this morning that it would be a terrible thing to do, the country simply wouldn't take it. I know we've been the most obedient lot over the course of the last couple of years, but now we've been out and free and back to work and living our lives, there's no way... If the government tried for a hard lockdown, there's no way that large number, numbers, I'm, I'm going to say of us, would comply with it. So look, my view, my message is that hope must overcome fear. We've got to learn to live with this problem. We've got to be positive, And the only thing to fear actually is fear itself. Well, joining me to get perhaps a rather more scientific analysis of where we are uh, that I'm able to do, is Emeritus Microbiologist at the University of Aberdeen, Professor Hugh Pennington. Hugh, good evening and welcome back to GB News.
2: Evening, uh, Nigel.
0: Well, you saw overnight uh, several people, several health professionals, urging that Plan B was put into action. And Sajid Javid was, was you know, very clear, we're not going to do Plan B, um, but they're keeping a very close eye on it. And they're urging people to get the booster jab. There does appear to be, doesn't there, some reluctance for people to go and get the booster jab. What would your advice to those people be?
2: Get it. I had mine yesterday. You know, I've got two sore arms because I'm of that age and so on. And, uh, you know, it's it's pretty trivial, apart from the, the nuisance of having to go to the vaccination centre or whatever it is. And getting uh, the the needles are very sharp. They don't you don't feel them as they go in, and bingo, you've got a a boost to your immunity for at least the next six months. Having probably got immunity that's been starting to go off. It doesn't go off completely by any means, but uh, any way that we can stop people getting ill enough to go into hospital, and the booster jabs are a very, very good way of doing that. Is is basically absolutely essential. Now, my concern is that we have so many cases, and, you know, David was talking about 100,000 cases possibly in the fairly near future. That's an enormous amount of virus that's out there challenging people, even people who've had the vaccine. We know the vaccines work very well. You know, they're more than 90% effective, but that means they're not 100% effective. We know that some people do get ill and really get quite sick, even if they've had the, the vaccine. With the with the um, the boosters, that's less less likely. So boosters very important, as you know. The press conference was was, was emphasising. My worry is there'll be so much virus about, pressing on the population at at, at large. If it gets to a hundred thousand, uh, we may have to go into lockdown. And the oh, one way no, to avoid that, no, no, the one way to, the one way to avoid that is to have plan B, because plan B is not that much different from what we've got anyway. Okay, you don't have mandatory masks, but you have, you're recommending, you know, he was going on quite some length about, and you have to wear it when you're on the tube and all this kind of stuff. And working from home, well, you know, that's only advisory anyway, and a lot of people are doing that. And and the vaccine passports, well, we have those in Scotland. There was a lot of toing and froing about that. And we have about half the number of cases per population, in Scotland than in England. So maybe there's something to do with the fact that we've had these passports for a couple of weeks and we're stopping these super-spreader events in nightclubs because we know from from basically what's happened in other countries that when the virus gets into a nightclub, people are hopping up and down. It's very hot. It's very close. It's, it's the ideal place for the virus to get about. And so if you've got vaccine passports, I know it's the infringement of your liberty. It is. But, 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 um, it's an infringement of people's liberty if they infect other people who then go on to die from it. If you see what
0: I mean... I mean, Hugh, you know, it seems to me, um, if I'm going... To, let's say I'm going to a major sporting event and we do have a very, very high number of cases. I don't object to taking a test, to showing that I'm negative, but I do object to the very concept of a vaccine passport and being asked to show it virtually everywhere I go. Uh, And I suspect it would attract a fair degree of non-compliance. On your first point about the jabs that you went to have yesterday, maybe one of the reasons for the reluctance is everybody was told, get double-jabbed, and that'll be it. Bingo. Job done. Now they're being told, go and get a booster jab. Oh, by the way, whilst you're there, get a flu jab as well. And there's, you know, a few quite sceptical people saying, are we going to be jabbed forever?
2: No, we're, we're jabbed annually. Well, <laughs> the age groups that I belong to, uh, we're jabbed every year for flu, and clearly we've been jabbed for, for COVID. But, you know, we may have to do it on an annual basis, like we do for flu. And the risk group that really is affected by COVID are old people. I'm not going to use the word elderly because I, I object to it. And that's my seniors, let's put it like that. And, uh, you know, we, we have a much harder time if we get infected with COVID, and we have a much harder time if we get with flu. If we get flu, and you know the, the idea that you know care homes and flu have been very very bad, you know that places. Well, care homes, if flu goes in there, it's not quite as bad, but nearly as bad as with COVID, for example. So the two viruses are similar in that respect; they're different in lots of other ways. But having a flu jab is is good, sound common sense. Now. The, the the point that one has to make about the flu jab is that it's only about half as effective as a COVID jab. You know, when when we started making vaccines, my test was, will the COVID jab be as good as a flu jab, which gives you about sixty percent protection? Well, they're a hell of a lot more than that. You know, they're ninety percent protective, even more than that, and so on. Um, you know, the, the, the COVID jab is a very, very, very Um, brilliant sort of success story and there are lots of different ones available but
0: if it's that good if it's that good if it's that blooming good and so many people have had it why are we talking why are you talking about potentially not just plan b but a lockdown happening again this winter if it's really that well
2: yeah well the no vaccine is 100 percent protective that's the problem and uh, clearly, the, the immunity wanes. Not everybody who's had the jab makes strong immunity. Most do, but some don't. And there are all sorts of folk out there who've had cancer treatment, immunotherapy for leukemia, that kind of thing, who won't be making a very good immune response, whatever vaccine they're given. But they're, they're, you know, if they meet COVID, ooh, bad news, bad news. So, you know, there's a balance to be struck here. There's a balance to be struck here. Yeah, One of the yeah. The flu is—we don't know what's going to happen this winter. You, you can't make any predictions about it at all. It might be terrible. It might be last year when we didn't have any at all. And that's one other reason for having masks. That what mask wearing did was to keep the flu down at sort of basement level. And uh, you know we've, been, we've known that for a hundred years. That it has a, a, a very you know, bad effect on the virus and a very good effect on the folks right. eating it. So, so,
0: Professor, you know, Professor that's Pennington. I'm going No, through. no, no I get it, I, I get it. You're telling us to get jabbed, you're telling us masks work, you're telling us that Plan B is coming. I find it a little bit depressing, but I suspect you're going to be proven right. And thank you very much indeed for joining us. Yeah, as I said, my, you know, in my, my own little talk-up, I can see more restrictions coming. Now, last night on this show, we talked about Boris's green dream the dream that wasn't advertised very clearly in the Conservative Manifesto, but it seems uh, that he is absolutely obsessed with doing it. And one of the questions I asked last night was, firstly, did you vote for this? But secondly, really worrying about who is actually going to pay for all of this. Take electric cars, for argument's sake. If people stop buying petrol and diesel, the Exchequer will lose nearly 40 billion sterling every year. That's going to be made up. Uh, we're expecting people to put heat pumps into their home, and there's a big argument that the cost of heat pumps will go down. Well, maybe it will, but they're almost certainly still going to be much more expensive than the gas equivalent. And, by the way, we're going to have a debate after the break about heat pumps and whether they really are effective in most houses in this country. And now we learn... Now we learn that the Treasury think there could be a black hole as big as 100 billion. And the government are saying today, well, yes, of course, taxes may have to go up in some way to pay for all of this. And I just get the feeling, I stick to the view, that that going green in the way that Boris Johnson wants to is absolutely fine if you're wealthy, uh, because the extra costs imposed upon you are frankly irrelevant, but for ordinary struggling families out there at a time when inflation is back in our economy, at a time when the cost of living, yes wages are rising, but the cost of living is rising even faster. And I think people are going to be feeling the pinch, feeling the squeeze, possibly for quite some time to come. And the idea that we're going to pay a whole load more tax uh, when, frankly, not only can we not afford it in many cases, but what good is it going to do? Because COP26 is coming up in a few days' time. Already, the Chinese have said they're not coming. President Putin today has said that he is not coming. And I don't know what the indian government are going to decide to go but it wouldn't su- surprise me at all if they didn't go either and if we as a country that emits one percent and i mean one percent of global co2 emissions are going to tax everybody ban all sorts of things uh, when the countries that are producing between them nearly 40 percent of global co2 are frankly not going to do very much people will start to ask questions. And it is interesting. Philip Johnson in today's Daily Telegraph was speculating that Boris Johnson actually was gambling his entire political legacy on going to net zero uh, and bringing in all these measures. And I think he is taking one hell of a risk. In a moment, we won't just talk heat pumps. We'll also talk about another initiative to try and stop everybody smoking. Because, after all... Big brother knows best. On Brazier at 8, with any luck, he's bleeding to death. The extraordinary 999 call made by a woman now on trial for killing her husband. Also, how close are we to another lockdown? We take you through the Health Secretary's latest press conference in the company of Carol Socora. And as the Queen takes to her bed, is it time for her to wind down? We'll ask one of Britain's leading royal experts. That's Brazier from 8. Well, there's no plan B yet, but we are being warned, go and get our booster jabs. And I think we're also being warned that restrictions of some kind may be happening. And I'm asking you, are you worried? Are you worried that Covid cases are going up? Are you worried that we're headed towards another lockdown. Your response is thus far. Glynis says, I'm not worried about winter Covid. I'm more worried about the plans Boris has for net zero. William comes on and says, I'm a law-abiding citizen, but I will not be obeying any more lockdowns, and neither will many of my colleagues. Enough is enough. These lockdowns have done more harm than the virus. I have to say, I think this time a lot of people would... Take that view. Have to say, I'm certainly one of them. Linda says, cases will continue to rise whilst we have an open door to people who are coming across the channel on a daily basis. We do not know what variants they are bringing in with them. Well, there's certainly, uh, if you go back a few months, when Dunkirk was one of the COVID hotspots in France, a lot of people were crossing from Dunkirk. Susan says, COVID is here to stay. I am petrified of lockdown. It would be so sad for my family. Yeah, look, you know, I said this in my initial talk-up. We're going to have to learn to live with this. We need... we, We really do need optimism over fear. We've got to learn to live with this. We've got to get on with our lives. It's been nearly two years. It's enough. Now, heat pumps are all the rage. Boris Johnson seems to be completely sold on the idea of heat pumps. And there was a big announcement that... Uh, you know, a £5,000 grant is going to go to people uh, to get a new heat pump. The trouble is that only applies to 90,000 houses and there are 27 million houses in the country. But there is some debate about heat pumps, debate about their efficiency, debate about their cost and debate about whether they work in cold weather. Well you me now? Is Director of Heat Pumps for Homes, David Morris. David, good evening.
3: Good evening, Nigel.
0: Now, I guess, given the name of your business, you're kind of going to be quite pro-heat pumps. So... <laughs> <laughs> um, just just, just tell us, is, you know, is Boris yeah. right? Is Boris right to say that after 2035, there'll be no more gas boilers and we'll all move to heat pumps? Is this the right thing? in theory for the country to do?
3: Well Nigel, from a climate change point of view, um, using a heat pump of course reduces CO2 emissions. So if the government strategy is to reduce fossil fuel use, then a heat pump is certainly the right way to go. Um, heat pumps are not always right for all properties. Uh, we have to consider properties on a case-by-case basis. And it's certainly not as simple to fit a heat pump solution as it is to fit a new gas boiler.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is the point, uh, David, that was being made to me. That a lot of new builds that are built to modern building standards, for them, a heat pump can work and actually, in most conditions, and I'll come back to that point, but in most conditions, can work pretty efficiently. But so many people in this country, so many people in this country live in old housing stock. Uh, With, you know, uh, windows that may not be completely draft proof, insulation that may not be up to the standard that it should be, um, where it's very difficult, uh, for example, to use methods like underfloor heating. There's a lot of housing stock here, David Morris, that these would not be appropriate
3: for. Yeah. Any ideas? um, Yeah, Okay. We we have to consider each property on a case by case basis. Um, Insulation levels need to be good. The, the, the secret of getting a successful heat pump installation is the design. Uh, we take a lot of trouble with each property to look at each property, to look at the design. If they're designed well and installed well, they work extremely well. Um, the problems arise when the installer doesn't consider all of the factors on that particular property or the installer is not properly qualified to fit and design a heat pump. So I would advise all customers thinking of heat pump installations to make sure that their installer is MCS approved, which is the body that designs and uh, regulates heat pump installations, and that they've got the suitable track record. Um, in terms of existing property, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, if the heat pump was installed into a property that had very poor insulation levels, there's a risk that the the running cost will be higher than an existing gas boiler.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And- Here's the big one, though, David, and I've got some experience of heat pumps, you know, using a heat pump outdoors to to heat an outdoor swimming pool. Doing that in the summer, I have to say, they are pretty efficient and quite cheap to run, and I get all of that, so I can see there are places where they can be used. But isn't the real problem with heat pumps that when the temperature, when the outside temperature, falls below 5 degrees centigrade, or significantly below 5 degrees centigrade, uh, they do not produce the kind of hot water that most houses would want.
3: Yes, Nigel, that's partially true. But as part of the design, what we take into account is the output of the heat pump at different temperatures. So to do this design properly, we will size down to say minus five degrees. We work out the heat energy that the building needs, and we make sure that the output of the heat pump at minus five degrees is still sufficient to meet that demand. As long as the output of the heat pump is in excess of the demand for the property you're still going to have sufficient heat problems only arise if the inst- if the design doesn't take that into account and you have a shortfall between the output of the heat pump and the
0: demand at low temperatures and finally david the cost of heat pumps somewhere between 10 yeah. and tw- and 10 and 20000 pounds depending on the home and you know i hear the argument that with technology uh, the price will likely come down. And I don't, you know, dispute that. But isn't the reality of this that actually heat pumps in, in order to meet climate change targets, it's a rich man's game, isn't it? Um... Nigel, what
3: you're saying is is partially true. From a financial point of view, if customers at the moment, uh, with the the price of gas as it has been, if they were just looking at a, a heat pump solution from a financial point of view, then uh, and comparing it with mains gas, then from a running cost point of view, there's not a lot in it, and from a capital cost point of view, it's it's higher. Where heat pumps traditionally have, have really come into their own is where Properties are not on mains gas; where they're using oil storage heaters or electric heating, the savings have been considerable. What's changed recently, of course, is the is the rapid increase in gas prices, and that is going to change the economics, and that's going to make the running cost of a heat pump um, much much more uh, economic and efficient. Um, but from a capital cost point of view, the five thousand pound grant. Is, is heading in the right direction, but I agree with you, it doesn't cover the complete difference in cost between how a ga- the capital cost of a gas boiler now and a heat pump installation. I think that's going to change over the time, and the government are committed to achieving parity between the cost of a gas boiler and a heat pump, and that's, that's got to be a positive thing for the industry, and it's heading in the right direction.
0: Okay, David Morris, thank you for giving us a very balanced view on heat pumps. Uh, And, yeah, in the right circumstances, they can be very effective. The idea that every home in this country can be switched to them and it's going to work and that people can afford it is nonsense, in my view. Well, sticking with cost and Boris's great dreams, joining me now is Chief Economist at Investment Bank, Panmure Gordon, and a former economist at the Cabinet Office, Simon French. Simon, good evening. Good evening, Nigel. Pleasure to join you. So nearly 40 billion a year will be lost if we stop buying petrol and diesel. That's just for starters. Overnight, leaks, I suspect, from the Treasury suggesting a hundred billion pound a year black hole. We are going to be tax to goodness knows what to pay for all of Boris's dreams, aren't we?
1: So what you're describing is, was came across very clearly in the report yesterday from the Treasury that there's a erosion of the tax base that normally is filled by fuel duty. But as we move away from uh, petrol and diesel and towards electric vehicles, that is going to gradually erode. So Treasury has to fill a gap. It's got, I mean, ultimately, the public finance has got three choices. It can either raise more taxes, it can find the elixir, which is to grow the economy faster, or it does spending cuts. And ultimately there are you can you can boil it down any way which way you like, but those are the three choices facing the exchequer. And if mm. they're seeing an erosion because of this transfer towards net zero, they have to go looking for that tax elsewhere if they don't want to cut public services.
0: Yeah, I mean some estimates are that the move towards net zero is going to cost a trillion sterling. I mean no one really knows what it's going to cost. But I mean the argument, Simon, that I'm making here is already we have a series of tax increases coming in in just a few months' time. We've got inflation uh, that is here to stay, certainly for a period of time. Uh, Cost of living increases that are going up faster than wages. Uh, I mean, these are actually quite tight times for lots of families. The idea they're going to have to pay a lot more for Boris's green dream when clearly China isn't going to do anything. I mean, politically, it's quite a dangerous thing to do, isn't it?
1: Uh, So I think you're alluding at a much uh, bigger point here around the distributional impact of new taxes. Any good taxation scheme designed to incentivize people to transition away from hydrocarbons and towards greener sources of energy needs to take into account the ability to pay. And I noticed on your previous interview, you were talking about the capital upfront cost of uh, air source heat pumps, ground source heat pumps, those are some of the impediments to low income households for taking advantage of what is likely to be a shift towards taxing gas and reducing the tax on electricity. But ultimately what you want to do is have a well designed tax system that takes into account that ability to pay. I would be very, very critical of any tax that didn't recognize, like, like all taxes, the, you know, famously the sort of poll tax when it was introduced took no account of the ability of households to pay. I think we've come a long way from that period, but to make sure we don't make those sort of mistakes, because distributional outcomes are very important, particularly when we know that energy costs among low-income households are a big portion, more than 10, in some cases 15% of their budget. And near term, that's going to be very hard for them to absorb.
0: And as a former economist at the Cabinet Office, can I ask you, frankly, have they really thought this through? I mean, you know, I get COP26 is coming up. I get the fact Boris Johnson wants to be seen to be this big global leader making a difference by being in the chair at this conference. Uh, And and I can see that it's become his new political dream. But have they actually thought it through and worked it out what this is going to cost ordinary families?
1: Well, if you measure the sheer amount of paperwork that was put in the public domain yesterday, then there's certainly been an awful lot of work done in this regard. But look, where you are correct is that there is no certainty, the degree to which capital costs, jobs creation, uh, the sort of growth transition, uh, how that will evolve. But there is always uncertainty with any political decision. It doesn't matter whether it's on net zero, whether it doesn't matter with education, health and defense. You're always dealing with uncertainty. And what you try and do, and you, you mentioned my sort of past life, you try and minimise your errors. I think it's very naive to suggest that there are going to be no errors in this, uh, this, this forecast, the estimates the, in terms of the tax burden, the upfront capital cost. But I do think when looking at the documents, there's an awful lot of work that's been done here. And the question you perhaps need to ask is, are there better, more credible estimates out there? And if they do, they should go toe to toe with the government's analysis and challenge it. That's what good analysis does. The, the public sector doesn't certainly have a monopoly on the high, high quality stuff. If there are people with better estimates out there, they should come forward because that will benefit households longer term if government can sort of crowdsource good economic analysis.
0: Simon French, I suspect we're going to come back and ask you back to continue this conversation because it's going to be a huge issue over the next few years. And thank you for coming on. My what the Farage moment. So proposals now in the House of Commons and the House of Lords for each cigarette to have printed down the side of it. Smoking kills. Yes, these measures have been proposed by MPs because they want more people to quit. And there's an amendment going in to the Health and Care Bill to that effect. And it's got uh, support in both the Commons and the Lords. Um, Nobody, but nobody, will stand up against it. Uh, just seems to me that, once again, this is a case of big brother knows What's best? Already, cigarette packets have all sorts of pictures on them, all sorts of health warnings, uh, and yet it seems to be something that MPs can all agree on. Uh, and I have to say, what about individual responsibility? What about choice? No, nope, there's to be none of that. Government is to decide. And maybe they ought to be worrying a little bit more about the obesity crisis in this country or the free availability of class. A drugs That would be my piece of advice to them, but they will press on with this regardless, I'm sure. My other What the Farage moment is a senior Tory MP has joined up with a Labour project. Now, it's a minority Labour project, but it is a project uh, that actually wants reparations to be paid to Africa so that we can atone for our sins during the colonial period, Um, debt cancellation for African countries today, Um, the restitution of African cultural property, Um, an international day for remembrance of the slave trade, and a public holiday in the UK for the day that slavery was abolished. And this is supported by three Labour MPs, yes, reparations to be paid to Africa for the past, and incredibly because it needed cross-party support. The father of the House, Sir Peter Bottomley, has added his signature to this. Why encourage them? Haven't we got enough? Haven't we simply got enough of people talking down this country and everything it has ever stood for? And I think Bottomley has made a very big mistake. One last quick thought. Our Queen, aged 95, was offered the title of oldie of the year. And she wrote back to the Oldie magazine, refusing the award on the basis that it was only a question of how old you felt and therefore she was still too young. I rather like that. In a moment, somebody who has tried very hard to stand up for spiritual values in this country within the Church of England, uh, but has found himself having to take a different route. I'll be talking pints with Michael Nazar Ali. We're open. The GB News pub is open and I'm here talking pints with Michael Nazar Ali, the former Bishop of Rochester. Yes.
3: Coming up on tonight live from 9pm is public anger towards insulate Britain justified. The woman who went head to head with that eco mob goes head to head with an eco warrior on tonight's clash. Plus, is Britain too scared to discuss the threat of radical Islam? Brendan O'Neill investigates. And West End legend Sir Tim Rice answers your questions as Jesus Christ Superstar celebrates 50 years on the stage.
0: That's tonight live with me, Dan Wooten, from 9pm on GB News. So we're here talking pints. Michael, uh, let's just firstly focus on those horrendous events that took place last week. Yes. Uh, down in, in Leon Sea. Yes. Um, it was interesting to me. Everybody was talking about the need for a calmer, gentler politics, a different discourse, a change of narrative. And yet, it seems pretty clear to me, with all the evidence, that the main suspect is somebody who was uh, referred to the Prevent programme, uh, who uh, was a fan of... Anjum Choudary, according to his friends, and that this was, in fact, um, Islamic terrorism. And yet people seem very reluctant to call it out for what it was.
4: It's his name. Uh, I don't know if anyone's commented on that, but it's Ali Harbi Ali, which means Ali who wages war, Ali. Really. Now, who gave him that name? I'd like to know. I don't know, but mm. it's interesting. Mm. Uh, I actually worked with David Amos on this. I mean, he's a friend of mine. And uh, one of the things we worked on was uh, how communities are getting isolated and that gives room for radicalization. Not everyone is radicalized, of course, but but some are. And this is uh, an example of that, of living in a kind of atmosphere that nurtures this kind of hatred of the West, of Christians, of Jews. Uh, in different ways, I don't think you can blame it all on the social media. I think there. No, is... nor do I. No. That's right. I think no. it has to be, and so I think we have to address this communal issue uh, that has arisen because of um, well-meant but uh, mistaken policies of multiculturalism, etc., uh, and that has meant isolated, ghettoized communities where it's more possible for young people like this chap to be radicalised. Now, you, of course, grew up
0: in a minority group. Yes. You were a Christian. You yes. became a Christian at a relatively young age, growing up in a predominantly Muslim country. Was was that difficult in Pakistan in those days?
4: Well, it wasn't in those days. You see, it was quite possible for Muslims and Christians to live amicably together. I mean, I went to a Catholic school, mm. uh, but the majority of pupils were Muslim. And then there were some Christians, or some were Catholic and some were not. Uh, And we all got on well together, you know, in in the school and and in in our neighbourhoods and so on. But it's this vision uh, that has been created by radical Islamism uh, of a kind of jihadist mentality of changing the world through force of arms. Mm. And that is not just in fringe groups. Uh, I mean, this is being encouraged by countries. Turkey, for instance, at the moment is vigorously promoting a return to uh, Ottoman, uh, 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 the Ottoman imperial era, uh, and how the Ottomans governed very large Christian and other communities. Well, this gives a kind of mindset to people. Um, And um, in Pakistan now the trust and the friendship and so on has often been replaced by suspicion, distrust, violence even. Mm.
0: And you came to this country, and of course I got to meet you some time ago when you were Bishop of Rochester because yes. that's the diocese that you know, I lived in and you confirmed one of my children and all the rest of it. So I was fo- followed your career very closely. And about 20 years ago, I thought, wow, this guy's going to become the Archbishop of Canterbury. I mean, you were in the top two or three runners and riders, uh, there, was a, there was a genuine prospect that, that you could get the job, it didn't happen. There was quite a, a vicious campaign fought against you by the Times newspaper. Day after day after day there was storm, but in a sense any form of election can be bitter, can be bloody, but you, you stood for something and you stood for an Anglican church And I'm sure there are millions of people in this country, the majority over a certain age in this country, who grew up understanding that the Church of England was the established church of this country, Mm -hmm. that the Queen was at the head of it, and it was to that church that we looked for some form of guidance. Of leadership. And I know you've now decided you can't stay with the Anglican Church, despite the years of long service you've given it, and you're joining the ordinate of the Catholic Church. What's gone wrong? What's happened to the Church of England? What's happened to Anglicanism?
4: Yeah, I think there are a number of levels to this. So when people go to church, I mean, take it at the very basic level, they go there um, to encounter the divine in whatever way they think of it. They go there to pray about their needs. They go there to get guidance, as you were just saying. Yeah. But if they are then confronted by kind of activism of different kinds, informed perhaps by critical theory, and you have uh, basically a kind of view that divides people into victims and villains, uh, then, of course, they don't go. Or if they go, they are frustrated. Similarly, I mean, at the other level, the establishment uh, level, the role of the church has been to provide moral guidance uh, to the nation. But if the church is itself uncertain about what that moral guidance might be, then, you know, what is the point of the establishment? Um, I mean, I would say, uh, really, that even if there was no established church, the role of Christianity in providing a point of departure for urgent moral questions that come up in policy-making and legislation, I mean, is absolutely vital, because you have to start somewhere. Uh, There is no neutrality. And on beginning-of-life issues, what to do with the early embryo, assisted dying is now topical, Uh, marriage and family, justification of conflict, when that happens. I mean, all of this... Uh, you need a point of departure. Of course, you need a contribution from all sorts of other areas of life as well, but the church has to be clear about
0: what it... It's almost evaporated. It's it's hardly a part of the lives of ordinary people. And I felt, during the pandemic, I mean, when this this virus first emerged, a lot of people were very scared. I think we were all a little bit scared when it first emerged. It was unknown. We had no idea just how much damage it might do. And people who were self-employed found they, their businesses couldn't operate yeah. and we were told to stay at home, uh, to do a series of things that were completely unnatural to us, uh, not able to go and visit friends, relatives, attend funerals, I mean all of these things, a very big emotional impact on everybody in some way, yeah. you know children, not being allowed to be children, I and mean, all of these things happened. Yes. I don't remember hearing anything from the Archbishop of Canterbury during all of this. I don't remember any leadership. Being there, if ever there was a moment, it seemed to me, ever there was a moment for the church to step up and to give us some hope, it was then. And I just felt it was missing completely.
4: Yeah. Well, I wrote two articles in the Daily Telegraph about this, the compulsory closure of churches. I mean, there is no evidence that with proper distancing and proper safety measures that anyone has ever been infected with COVID in a church. But OK, take all the right measures. I'm not against that at all. I pleaded in this article, it was Easter time, for people at least to be able to gather in the parks and the, you know, open
0: spaces. To worship.
4: Yeah, to worship, uh, Easter Day. Yeah. And that was not allowed. I mean, people were allowed uh, street choirs, and of course they were allowed to come out and bang uh, saucepans and (laughs) kettles and so (laughs) forth uh, for the National Health Service, but not even a simple act of worship outside. The church went even further than the state and prohibited its own clergy from entering their own churches even to conduct a service online. I mean, this is just, this should never happen again. It's an interference in a basic freedom, which is the freedom to worship. Uh, and I think the government has actually taken our protests seriously because in subsequent lockdowns, uh, places of worship have been advised mm. how to behave, but they've not been uh, shut down. And I think that is how it should remain.
0: Yeah, it was the first time since 1,200...
4: Well, yes, well, the, 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 flag, the churches yes, have I been mean, it's... Oh, uh, yes.
0: Unbelievable. Well, so you were, in a sense, for standing up for the things that you believed in, effectively becoming a rebel within your own church, weren't you?
4: Well, I'm not a rebel, I'm actually quite... Conservative, I mean, I I just want the church to be what it is supposed to be and not some kind of activist lobby.
0: But you've left it.
4: Well, yes, uh, because I felt that... I mean, there are two two areas, really. One, that the church cannot make a decision uh, about its own life which sticks. When it makes a decision, people just go and do their own thing. Secondly, there's no one to tell people, you know, th- I'm not saying that this should be promiscuous, that church leaders should always be telling people how to live their lives. But sometimes there come t- um, uh, opportunities when you, uh, or necessities when you have to say to people, look, this is the way to go. And if the church can't do that, then you have to ask, well, what is it for?
0: No, I I understand that. Well, are you say so as a Catholic? But how active are you going to be?
4: Well, the ordinariat that I'm joining is yes. actually has is allowing the good things in Anglicanism to be retained.
0: Because you're a married man with family. Well, that
4: married clergy is one yes. thing. Yes, yes. But also the the Book of Common Prayer. I mean, the ordinariate uses Cranmer and the beautiful language of the Book of Common Prayer more. I think than most Church of England churches (laughs) do. Probably true. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Um, Approaches to reading the Bible and using it for guidance. Uh, How to guide people morally. I mean, the the Roman Catholic Church's tradition of, of that has come through thinking about the confessional. But but Anglican thinking about moral issues has come through involvement in the wider community, and I think this is something we can bring to the wider church. So there are some good things that should be preserved, uh, and I would want to play a role in in doing that. But equally, we can learn from the wider church about how to act together, about when it is right for the church to pronounce on a matter uh, for the sake of wider society. And when you're not
0: involved... You're a big cricket fan, I know.
4: Well, I've played cricket in the past, and um, I suppose I could still play a bit. but <laughs> <laughs> and What you do you know? One thing, Nigel, that I that got me into teams where I didn't deserve to be, is that I can bowl with either arm. Can you? Well, I could, good, good. Yeah, okay, yeah, good, right, right yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes.
0: good. Yes. You can bowl with a... and, and the same type of delivery with either arm. No, or... no. Um, it used to be sort of.
4: Well, medium-ish, with the right arm. Yes. And um, left arm
0: spin. Well, there we are, you see. You get people here, like Michael (laughs) Nazarelli, on Talking Pints. You think you know absolutely everything about them, but you don't. The guy could bowl with either arm. That was Michael Nazarelli joining me on Talking Pints. Well, there we are. Now, we're right towards the end of the show. But I've got time for a couple of questions. Yep, it's the Barrage the Farage section where you send in your questions and I don't get first sight. Here goes. Peter asks me, have you decided which political party you will vote for in the next general election? Look, the next general election is a very, very long way away. Um, Of course, you know, I am involved with Reform UK because I do think our system needs reform. I just wonder whether there'll even be a Conservative Party on the ballot paper. I think it's going to become the Green Party. I really do. I'm teasing. Alan <laughs> says, says to me, would plan B or a lockdown mean the vaccine rollout has failed? I did ask Hugh Pennington that. You know, earlier on, a very well-known microbiologist, and Hugh was saying, look, the vaccine's fantastic. It's amazingly effective. It's doubly good. Uh, when compared to the flu vaccine. I said, well, in which case, why are we still considering, given how many people have been vaxxed? There could be not just plan B, but maybe even further lockdowns. I suppose the question to ask ourselves is, how bad would things have been if we hadn't had the vaccine? And I do accept the argument that having the vaccine doesn't prevent you catching COVID, doesn't prevent you spreading COVID. But I think the statistics about if you get COVID, about you getting seriously ill, I think those statistics, for me, are pretty overwhelming. Mm. Having said all of that, I do not want vaccine passports. I will not take a vaccine passport into a pub in Kent and show it before I order a pint of beer. It's just not on, it is an infringement too far. Time for one or two more. Michael says, is it possible for a new political party to challenge the two-party system in the UK? I don't think anybody has come closer in England to breaking the system than I did, but you can get four million votes and win one seat under the first-past-the-post system. It is difficult to raise large sums of money, uh, because you find that the donors then get charged inheritance tax. The whole, thing, the whole thing is set up as a closed shop. It is very, very difficult to change things in this country through the political system, all of which makes me look back and think the fact we managed to achieve Brexit was pretty, pretty Remarkable, it really, really was. Laura asks, "Do you have a favourite singer or group?" I'm going to ask Michael Nazarelli. What sort of music do you like, Michael?
4: Well, um, all sorts really. I mean, uh, a classical, of course, um, good church music, uh, but also jazz. So, um, yes, I'm open to any kind of good music.
0: I think we can say he's got Catholic tastes in music. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the show. <laughs>